How are you all going? <laughs> Is that capital A awesome, Rick, or just small A awesome? There's a big difference. Oh, big A, awesome. Capital A awesome for me. Um, so we are on Easter Sunday. We are on our 50th session in John. How cool is that? So I did some calculations. We have spent, on average, if you use the averages from the sermons, 33.3 hours. That's a good kind of number. 33.3 hours in John. And that memory verse, Jesus did all these miraculous signs so that we might believe, really lead up to, the miraculous signs lead up to this massive um, time and space rupturing, history changing, Awesome, capital A, awesome, event. So I'm just wondering if we could turn there uh, to John 20, 1 to 18. And as you know, John was a very close friend of Jesus. Towards the end of his life, he chose to write down his recollections of Jesus with one goal, to prove that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was who he said he was, so that we might know deep in our hearts that he really is God, that he really is who he says he is. So John 21 to 18. And just as we're going through John 21 to 18, I just want you to consider some things. It's Easter Sunday morning, but previous to Easter Sunday morning is the Sabbath, the preparation day, when an innocent man was brutally tortured. He was spat on. He was mocked. He was hit. He was slashed not just whipped, slashed with a whip of bones and probably rusty iron. He was hung on a cross. And now, as we come to this story, as we're about to read this story, um, or just previous to this, his body has for three days lain stone-cold dead. Make no mistake, stone-cold dead. Critics, Christians, believers, skeptics all believe that Jesus was really there, he was really dead, and then his, his tomb was really empty. There are very few people who disagree with that. So even hardened atheists agree about those three facts. They're called the minimalist facts around Easter. And most Christian apologists will just argue about that uh, and try and show that, well, okay, so if those three facts are true, what happened to the body? Why did all these disciples suddenly get fired up? Why did they suddenly get so fired up that 2,000 years later, a band called Petra would write a song called He Came, He Saw, He Conquered? That's how lasting this was, guys. There are many other messiahs that showed up. Do you remember uh, Bar Joseph? Any Josephites out there? No, because when he got taken out by the Romans, that's what they did. They cut off the head of these movements. That was it. The whole movement folded. Well, they cut off this head, and guess what? <laughs> it did exactly the opposite. You're Christians, Christ ones. That's amazing. It's amazing that you're sitting here. I wish that there were more seats kind of filled and all that kind of stuff as you do, but just that you're here. That's really cool. So this same one who has laid in the tomb, he, he turned water to wine. Remember the seven key miracles that we've been through in John, that John set up his whole recollection around seven key, very cool events that he witnessed. And there was many, many more, as it says in our memory verse, but he started with water to wine at that wedding feast. That's so cool, isn't it, that Jesus <laughs> would... Uh, would provide alcohol, very fine alcohol, at a, at, a, at a celebration. 
Some of the teetotaler Christians have tried to say that the, the wine was probably not, uh, didn't have time to ferment, so it wasn't really alcohol. I don't know about that. They all seem to think it was pretty fine alcohol. But like he's already there um, doing amazing things. Anyone remember what the next miracle was in John? I don't remember either, so I'm going <laughs> to, it's just a rhetorical question or rhetorical question. The remote healing of the ruler's son, a Roman official. Jesus says the word, the son is healed. It's this guy that's lying in the tomb or has been lying in the tomb. Then 5,000 fed with five small loaves, two small fish. Shortly after that, a massive storm. His disciples out there, fear of their life. We worked out scientifically from the historical account that Jesus must have walked at least five kilometers on water and it was stormy. And you'll probably re recollect we were trying to work out whether he went over or through. I chose through because he's the he came, he saw, he conquered guy. Plowing through the water, not like the little that you see in the movies. I hate those movies. Um, he strode across the rugged water. The next one was he uh, healed the man born blind. He was blind his whole life. The first thing he saw was Jesus' face. That's cool. He then uh, raised Lazarus from the dead. His whole life, Jesus served, he loved, he healed, he taught. He passionately dialogued with hard-hearted Pharisees. You know, those religious nutbags? They had to be a nutbag not to accept this. They had to be certifiably insane not to accept that amount of evidence. They weren't really. They were just hard-hearted is what the scriptures tell us. But Jesus engaged with those hard-hearted people. Over 60% of John is dialogue between Jesus and people who hate his guts. What do you do with people who hate your guts? Do you continue to talk to them? No, Steve's got little fingers going, demonstrating he walks away. Of course, that's what we do. It's just too hard. It's him who's lying in the tomb or has been lying in the tomb. And Jesus' followers on this Easter Sunday morning had such high hopes, didn't they? And it's Easter Sunday morning. There's something eerie when you read the story. Like it kind of just gives you the facts. Like If you were writing this story, wouldn't you embellish it a little bit, put a little bit of drama in? But the way the gospel writers record things is just very factually. But at the same time, even with just that sort of factual account, you, you get look, it, look, it's something eerie, something otherworldly. It's kind of at twilight. Uh, it's early in the morning. Um, there's this amazing thing that's happened on the cross with the earthquake and so forth. It, it's kind of like it's just... It's almost got the feel that it is beyond the three dimensions, that there's other things going on. It's something very cool. So let's read it together. John 20, 1 to 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outrun Peter, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over, looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen, Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. That other disciple is John. It's the writer. He often refers to himself in the uh, first person, sorry, third person uh, as the other person. He doesn't refer to himself by name. So just in case you're wondering, I, I won't go into it now, but I can prove it to you from comparing these accounts to the other gospels. 
He saw and believed. They still, so both John and Peter, still did not understand there in verse 9 from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. The disciples went back to their homes. They went back to the place that they were staying. But Mary, by the way, this is probably the third time she's been at the tomb, and I'll show you that later. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? You have to understand in that time, woman is actually a term of respect, almost a bit like man. Why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around. I'm just going to pause. Just, just, just go quiet for a minute. Just listen to the rain. Perfect. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. You realise one day, you're going to turn around and you're going to see Jesus. Might be through the grave, might be before the grave. We don't know for sure. Imagine that moment. She turns around and she saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't realise that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell, him where you have, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. What's, what's a little woman going to do with a body? <laughs> this is one of the realistic kind of details in here. You, know, you don't write that stuff if you're making it up. What's a, what's a, what's a woman going to do with it? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'll go get him. Like, it's just the grief of the moment. The, the, she's upset. And then, and then Jesus says to her, Mary, he knows her name. Immediately, she turns towards him and cries out in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers, my brothers, and tell them, I am returning to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Mary was the first evangelist. How cool. Before I talk about the Easter challenge, I just want to pray. <clears throat> Father, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the magnificent record of history preserved in so many different accounts. Lord, I want to thank you for that precious rain that falls. Right now you cause the rain to call upon, fall upon both the wicked and the good. That's what your word says. Your grace poured out both the wicked and the good, and so too the cross, so too this resurrection account. It could just flow out. It could just fall upon people in a fresh understanding. I just pray that it will. I pray that at the end we would know that we are loved. We would know that you are glorious. In Jesus' name, amen. Has anyone heard of the Easter challenge? So the Easter challenge was a challenge put out in the mid-90s by an ex-Christian. I'm not going to say his name because I don't really want to give him any more publicity than he already has, but you could easily find out if you wanted to. He alleges that you can't make sense of the Easter accounts. We have four different accounts, as you know. Uh, five if you count Paul, who sort of gives a big summary. He left Christianity in 1984. This guy, I really feel for him because he still actually receives royalties from a Christian kid song that he wrote back in the 70s called His Fleece Was White As Snow. So 
This dude has come up with the Easter challenge. It's been out there since the 90s. It has actually now been answered numerous times. But it got me kind of thinking, and as it got me thinking, I was like, wow, this is really cool. Because it got me deeper into the four different accounts. So for the last four weeks, I've been listening, reading over and over again, the four different accounts, the four different gospel accounts. It's so good. It's so good. I'll go there in a minute. Anyway, what he's basically said is, just tell me what happened at Easter. Just tell me what happened on the resurrection day. And basically his whole uh, challenge revolves around the differences in the accounts. I'm not going to go into it all now, okay? But I just want you to understand that as I go through my presentation or my sermon today, I have brought these four different accounts together. And there's a little bit of coherence that has gone on, as in cohering the different accounts, a bit of harmonisation as it's called. Um, many other people have done better jobs than me. There's different ways of harmonising the accounts. And maybe you'd like to go and research that a little bit more into the future. But I want to say that the Easter challenge has been answered. But I also want to say before we go through this, you need to understand four or five things. First of all, if all the Easter accounts were exactly the same, what would the criticism be then? Exactly. Collusion. I do investigations of incidents and so forth. And if the account is exactly the same, you know it's probably been made up. Okay? That's not so with the Gospels. They're all different. They all come at it from different angles. Some are writing just in a broad summary way. Others are going right down into the detail. John is focusing in on Mary Magdalene here. Two, something else to be aware of when considering the four different accounts. This event is the biggest event in the cosmos. Right? If it's true... It's the biggest event in the cosmos. It reaches across dimensions. It's spiritual but earthy. It's kind of this convergence, like I said before, kind of unearthly, trans-space, dimensional time feel, like time and space are almost out of sorts. So one of the allegations is often raised, oh, which, how many angels were there? We even heard before at Matthew, the angel that sat on the stone. I kind of like that because it's like stupid stone. Get out of the way. <laughs> what are you doing with my commander-in-chief? Get out of the way. Now, if you're an angel, and angels, as we understand, are sentient beings. They're smart. They understand things. They're very powerful. If something as big as this had happened, and I was an angel, I'd want to go and see. So in all likelihood, there were probably lots of angels coming and going. Let's go, let's go see where our commander-in-chief was laid down there, dead, and now is alive. Coming and going, coming and going. Some are specifically there to announce the event. So something to think about there. Um, as well, Matthew says that Jesus, after he was resurrected, others were resurrected as well. Again, that kind of weird, kind of eerie, out of three-dimensional kind of feel. Because the event was so big, there was probably multiple visits by people coming and going, um, probably after the initial Mary Magdalene account. But what you have to understand is most historical accounts show us that the tomb was very close to where the disciples were staying, probably not more than a thousand metres. I got the little map out and measured it all out, even furthest point away where the living area was of, or the living quarters was of Jerusalem compared to where even the three traditional sites, all of them are within a thousand metres. So you could come and go. That's why you could run the whole way and not, you know, get puffed out. Although they were probably pretty fit because they used to walk everywhere anyway. So just consider that. Fourth, in terms of which women were there, multiple women don't need to be mentioned by name. Ancient historians would often just focus in on a key one. Doesn't mean there weren't other women there. Matter of fact, even here you might be going, Mary Magdalene, she's all by herself. But we just saw back in the warm-up that there were three or four women. There's probably five or six women. And actually, if you look in chapter two, uh, verse 2 there, what does it say? We do not know where they've put him. 
So obviously that's inferring that there are other women there as well. Fifth, history was recorded quite differently by ancient writers. They don't necessarily do it chronologically. Um, and that's pretty much the five things I wanted to talk about in terms of the Easter challenge. I'm going to flip this around at the end and I'm going to put out an Easter challenge of my own. But just suffice to say, I've listened to numerous podcasts, listened to the scriptures. And you know what? Even if all those challenges stood, the minimal facts are all agreed on. Jesus really died. The tomb was really empty. The disciples were radically changed. You've got to do something with that. If you're a hardened skeptic, you've got to do something with that. That's my Easter challenge. Give me a plausible explanation for that. There's many out there, such as he swooned, as in he fainted. But as has been said, man, would you follow a guy like that if he came back, oh, what, you know, all messed up? No. Anyway, we could go on and on. But I want to answer the Easter challenge in this way. So where did that devotion come from for the disciples? And let's just go in a little bit deeper and go, who do you think is the most devoted in the uh, the key characters that surround the resurrection account, who do you think is the most devoted? Just using, say, John 20. Let's start with Mary. So let's just read, uh, I'll just read that together. So John 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Do you think that perhaps she is one of the most devoted? I've got to tell you that she is my favourite. She's my favourite, and I'll tell you why in a minute, but she is awesome. It is so interesting to me that, that God, that the Lord Jesus has decided that he would use Mary Magdalene as the first to see Jesus. I reckon angels were arguing over who would see Jesus first when he was resurrected. Wouldn't you be arguing, like if you really believed it, like, wouldn't you be arguing, oh, I'll be, I want to be first? What, what an honour. <laughs> what an honour. Anyway, Mary Magdalene, we don't know much about her from the scriptures, but Luke tells us that she was one that travelled with Jesus with a bunch of other women and they provided for Jesus out of their own means. So you know when you're seeing all these stories of Peter and James and John wanting to call down thunder and Peter falling down through the water and Peter doing brash things and the disciples doing this, the 72 being sent out, the whole time there is a group of women with Jesus and they're just quietly organising the food, organising the, um, the, the accommodation, organising his needs, just quietly doing that. And they're never preached, well, very rarely have I ever heard them preached on. And you go through all the gospel accounts, all those stories that we know and have come to love, the, the, the women are in the background. So it's little wonder to me that Jesus goes, you know what, Mary, you're going to be the first. Now Mary had, uh, as it says there, seven spirits thrown out of her, the, these Evil beings would often tweak with her emotions, tweak with her mental state and just ruin her life. And Jesus with a word, boom, gone. And she, she loved Jesus. She saw Jesus. She saw all those things that went on. These women were helping uh, to support Jesus out of their own means. And Mary was one of them and she's mentioned the most. Now just consider this in terms of her devotion. What did she see when she last saw Jesus? So in the darkness between Easter Friday and as in the spiritual darkness, between Easter uh, Friday and Sunday. What was the last thing? What was the lasting memory in her mind as she goes to the tomb? Now we're told in John 19 verse 25 that near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, 
and, and Mary Magdalene. So they're right there. Right at the foot, they could see the blood dripping down. They can see Jesus when he's kicked, he's beaten. I just had this picture, you know, of the staff that they gave him. It was a mock scepter and they beat him over the head with it. Have you ever seen someone, just imagine someone you really love, that you really respect, and someone gets a big bit of wood and just whack again and again on the head. Boom, boom. Like, is that disturbing to you? Imagine how Mary felt as she saw that happen to the one that had healed her, the one that she loved, the one that all the women loved, the one that all the the disciples loved. Now, Matthew says that there were women looking on from a distance. And this is where these guys go, oh, see, contradiction. John says they were close. Matthew says they were far away. Uh Uh-oh, better throw away my faith. Better throw away my faith in the Lord Jesus. Like, really? That's actually a pretty easy one if you think about it. The crucifixion went on for many hours. And if, you, like, if you're watching someone suffer and die, tr- constantly trying to pull themselves up, are you going to want to keep watching that? Of course not. At some point or another, you're going to move away. And so that's what happened. Funnily enough, Matthew and Mark both record that they were at a distance when they heard Jesus cry out and die. So they've been close, then they've moved away. So both close and from a distance, what she last saw was Jesus beaten, battered, terribly treated. Now Matthew 27, we don't have to turn there, says an interesting thing. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb when Joseph of Arimathea Um, and Nicodemus, uh, I think I got that right, take the body down. And that was really poignant, I felt, with the, just the way you did that, Nicole, with the the red and just hiding, because you imagine Nicodemus uh, is is having to wrap that body and then take it probably only a few hundred metres, from what we can tell, to a tomb. Um, They've got heaps of spice. The day's drawing to an end. The women have some spice as well, but they don't get it all done. They don't get it all done. And they want to do the right thing by their Lord. They want to respect his body and do the traditional thing and and anoint it with spices for burial. But the Sabbath is approaching, so they leave. Now, Matthew 28, verse 1 says a very interesting thing about Mary. After the Sabbath, or if you look at the original Greek, towards the end of the Sabbath, anyone know when the Sabbath finished? About sundown? on a Saturday, so about 6 p.m. So Mary has gone back towards the end of the Sabbath to look at the tomb again. Now Matthew's account is sort of a big, broad look of history, just picking out key events, not necessarily chronological. But a lot of the later versions have actually tried to tidy this up and say, no, no, it was after the Sabbath. That's not what the Greek says. It was towards the end of the Sabbath. Don't go into there now because I'll lose you for the rest of the sermon. You can go check that for yourself. Okay. Um, And it does say dawn, but the dawn is actually just meaning as in the next day is about to start, not necessarily the rising of the sun. So she has gone towards the end of the Sabbath. That's pretty devoted, eh? But again, wouldn't you just, look, if he said that he's going to rise from the dead, wouldn't you be hoping against hope? Even, Even maybe watching as they put him in the tomb, maybe you're thinking, could it be now? But then as the, as the tomb, the tomb is closed over, you're probably just starting to lose hope. Maybe it's all wrong. 
maybe it isn't going to happen. But then comes Easter Sunday. Early on the first day of the week, it's Mary who goes. She sees the open tomb. She runs. There's a lot of running in this account. <laughs> Which again is kind of, you'd expect that, wouldn't you? Like, I'm just going to walk slowly back to tell the disciples. By now it's probably light, so she can see and run. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't, we, so there are other women there, we don't know where they've put him. She's the first to see and to announce the most spectacular act of love ever. Without her, Peter and John would not have even gone. She's awesome. But is she the most devoted? I don't know. What do you guys think? She's my favourite. She's, she's, she's my red hot favourite there. She's running first in that. Well, let's look, at, uh, let's look at the disciple, the beloved disciple, which is John. So look at verse 3 with me. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and he reached the tomb first. He's a speedster. He's fast. Some have actually built a whole theology on this to say that John was, that's why we know John was really young and lived a long time because he was younger than Peter so he could run. <laughs> I'm serious. That is one of the key evidences. And I just think, I know some 45-year-olds are doing triathlons right now. So anyway, um, point is he was keen to get there and he ran fast. But when he bends over, now imagine the tomb is just a small, probably you know, four or five foot high. You have to actually bend in and try and get down in there just so it allows the, the, the stone to be rolled over. John looks in and he doesn't go in. Now, as I said, this other disciple was John the Beloved. And people have often wondered, well, does that mean Jesus doesn't love other people because it's the one Jesus loved? That's kind of his nickname. But if you think about it, John is the only disciple that was at the cross. He's the disciple that is then looking after Jesus' mother. So it's not like Jesus doesn't love the other disciples, but this one he loves in a kind of appreciative way, particularly in his humanness, because John was there for him when it counted. So that's why he's called that. But is he the most devoted? Well, think about when John last saw him. We know that from John's own account. Previously in John chapter 19, Jesus saw his mother there. Jesus is on the cross. And the disciple whom he loved, there's the nickname again, standing nearby, and he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Now, John 19.34 says an interesting thing. Instead of, so this is after Jesus, uh, they're, gonna, they're thinking about killing Jesus. They've broken the bones of the thieves, the legs, and so forth. And um, when they come to Jesus, the soldiers come to Jesus, they notice he's already dead. And John says here that in verse 34 of chapter 19, instead one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear instead of breaking his legs to kill him off because he was already dead, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you may also believe. Most scholars believe that's John again. And it makes sense because he's there. He's close to the cross. And again, you can go and check that later on. I wouldn't argue with, with you over it. But a high probability it's John because that's the way he's referring to himself. So the last thing he has seen, seen of Jesus is his stone cold, well not stone, warm dead body and blood, a, a, a spear thrust. A Roman soldier knew exactly how to kill a person and make sure. Up under the rib cage, straight up into the heart and a gush of blood and water. And there's, you can talk to the medical clinicians here about why there would be water. Anyway, so that's the last that John has seen. And now there's like hope that's starting to spark in his heart and he just sprints. 
He outruns Peter, but he doesn't go in because, you know, tombs are dirty, creepy things. Would you go in? He kind of pauses. Whoa, I'm not going to go in there. And it's kind, of, it's kind of getting a bit, it's almost funny in the account because the tombs just start to get real busy. <laughs> you know, like tombs are normally empty, dead, dead, literally, places you don't go to. But it's just starting to get like peak hour in there. <laughs> People coming and going. And I just, I love that scene because only Jesus could turn a tomb into a peak hour place, you know, a meeting place kind of thing. Only Jesus can do that. Don't you, don't you think that's cool? I don't, I don't know. I just think it's cool. Anyway, so Jesus um, is gone from the tomb. John looks in, but he doesn't go in. Um, and it says there in uh, verse 9 or verse 8 and 9 that he believes, he sees and believes, but he still doesn't understand. So it's sort of like this half belief. Like he's believing that, yeah, maybe Jesus has risen from there, but he doesn't, hasn't kind of put it all together. So I don't know. Do you think John, most devoted, I'm not sure what I kind of like about Peter is John stops, so Peter's running, and it's like, you know, if you were blokes, you would be like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm a bit faster than him. That's just what blokes do. So (laughs) it's almost like, when oh, I shouldn't do that, but it's just just something happy and kind of jovial about this tomb, you know, in a sense. I mean, it's still eerie and stuff, but as we reflect on it, there's something happy about it, isn't it? How could could a death symbol be turned into something happy? Anyway, that's all part of my own Easter challenge. Anyway, so Peter Peter just zooms straight past. You notice what it says there. If you look at verse 6 with me, Peter, who was behind him, arrives and went into the tomb. That means he didn't stop. He didn't pause. He went straight in there. He just quickly, get out. What's going on in here? It's just so much like Peter, isn't it? Isn't that what you expect from what we know of Peter from the other accounts? And he looks in. Now, in the Greek there, when it says he saw the strips, it actually means that he gazed intently. He looked. When John looked in, it was just kind of a quick, he's looking and he's staring and he's trying to understand what is going on. He sees the cloth folded up. That's another little detail. Isn't that interesting? That was the cloth that probably held the mouth closed. It's a bit gruesome, but that's what it probably did. So the sense you get here is when Jesus was resurrected, it wasn't like, oh, get these clothes off me. It was like, just undo it, fold it, put it down. We don't really know about the rest of the linen, whether it was in the shape of his body or anything like that. But it's just like this kind of sense of control. Undo the face cloth, put it down, off I go. Peter sees all that. What did Peter last see? Do you remember? What did Peter last see of Jesus? Yep, I'll read it to you from Luke. A little later, someone else also saw Peter and said, you're one of them. I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and actually says he cursed. In other accounts, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Peter rushes out into the night weeping. That is the last time he saw Jesus. And yet here he is at the tomb. Hoping against hope. He goes straight past John. He's straight into the tomb. He stares at the grave linen and he wonders to himself what has happened. And then he goes back home. Was he the most devoted? There's other characters that we need to consider. Verse 10, the disciples went back to their homes. Verse 11, Mary's now caught up again. And she's standing outside the tomb crying. And as she weeps, she bends over to look into the tomb two angels. 
Two angels are there. Maybe they're the most devoted. What do you think? Can you imagine them watching their commander-in-chief beat up like that? It would be like Lancelot watching King Arthur get smashed around. Do you know what I mean? Except way, way worse. Angels are often talked about as the host. That's a word for army, angelic army. Psalm 148 says, Praise Yahweh, all his angels. Praise him, all his armies. Yahweh is lying in this tomb. Jesus, as we heard, I'm so glad it came out in the warm-up. What is 12 legions, guys? How many angels is that? There's about 6,000 per legion. 72,000 angels. Can you imagine if 72,000 angels had showed up in the garden or on Golgotha? Angels are just awesome, powerful beings. And when they last saw him, they saw their commander-in-chief hit about the head with a mock scepter. They saw him spat on. They saw the thorny crown pushed down into his skull. Now, if a mighty man, a hero, sees his commander like that, look out. And yet they are told to wait. They are told to hold their hand. And now, though, they get to announce, just as they always have, the key events. And they are always so obedient, so direct. We really don't know much about them. But I suspect they would have been itching to be a part of this, to be part of the announcers. Are they the most devoted? I'm going to flip this around a little bit. What is the last thing that Jesus saw? Before he cried out, it is finished. What was the last thing that would have been registering in his consciousness? Through those eyes that by now are probably crusted over with blood and gore. Well, the scripture tells us, guys. I'll read. Jesus, this is from Luke as well. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they were doing. They divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and sneering. The last thing Jesus saw, as he cried out, it is finished, was sneering, mocking, staring, eyes with a murderous glint in them. That's the last thing Jesus said. So I want to ask you, because I could easily say, be like Mary Magdalene, it's so tempting. Be like Peter, be like John. Why do you look you know, for the, the, the living amongst the dead? Classic line on Easter Sunday, yeah? I want to put it to you that the most devoted is our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's just read the rest of this story with that in mind. They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put them. At this, she turns around. Jesus is standing there. The last set of human faces he saw was leering. Now he sees Mary. 15, verse 15. Why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, carried him away tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. And then Jesus says a strange thing, and I'm not going to try and explain it. I don't know why he says, don't hold on to me. All I know is the next bit, go instead to my brothers, my brothers, tell them I'm returning to my father and to your, to your father. Now think about that. Go and tell those guys that deserted me, that denied me. They all denied Jesus by leaving, by the way. 
Go and tell them, my father, your father, my God, your God. And then he tells them later on to go out into the world and tell the whole world about this wonderful, beautiful story. That's devotion, guys. That's devotion from our God. That's devotion. He is the most devoted of them all. Sorry to get excited, a bit passionate. But I kind of don't care. You know why? Because one day you're going to get, I don't know, it's just one day, just like sort of John half believed. That's where, where, where most of us are at. That's where, that's where I'm at a lot of my life. Sort of just enough belief to get by in a sense, even if that were possible. And then now and again, God just goes, boosh, go. And all of a sudden, it's just, whoa. You just get a glimpse, a glimmer. I was just praying that we would get that this morning, that we'd get it over these few days of Easter. Romans 8.33 says, What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Wow, that's devotion, hey? Isn't it? That's devotion. How awesome. Here's the real Easter challenge. Like, knowing that our God is devoted to us like that, he has devo he's devoted to his enemies. He loves his enemies. No other God does that. How devoted are we? This is the real Easter challenge. How devoted are we? I just want you to think about something because in all my texting this weekend, you know what I wanted to find? An emoji cross. Do you know how hard it is to find an emoji cross in the Apple iOS? I hope it's different in Android and Windows. You can check later. So I just took a little screen capture. This is me trying to send a cross emoji. Okay, so with all the emojis, there must be hundreds. Look, okay, where is it? Oh, yep, there's those. Animals and nature, food and drink, activity, travel and places, objects, symbols, aha. Uh -huh. Thanks, Ben, he pointed this out to me. There it is. Now, there is a little cross on some of the churches in travel and places, but there is no cross anywhere else. And I don't want you to go and rant on Facebook about it. I don't really care. But Apple are renowned for making sure that you, the operator, have everything you need and are able to use it with a certain amount of ease. So they have decided in their heads, you'll never want a cross emoji, or very rarely. And I just was thinking, I felt like the Lord saying, put that in your sermon. I was like, that's kind of dumb. How does that connect? And then, but then I, as, I, as I was thinking about, like, we're on our tech, you know, we're texting all the time, communicating all the time. We've got our smartphones all the time, don't we? And as we look for something important, we want to tell each other, we use these emojis or emoticons. Well, you're not going to find the cross real easily there, guys. And what does that say? It says that in general, this Easter event is one out of a thousand, as in not, not really even worth worrying about, as in one, 999 down the list. Have you ever got to a 999th Google search result? It's, it's there. That's our level of devotion. And I'm not going to like harp on about it, but I would just, as an Easter challenge, would you just, just go away from here, pray to our Lord, and just say, look, what, what is my level of devotion to you? And, you know, we put out 50 extra seats today, or Andrew did. He was, he's so awesome. I got here and most of it was already done. Um, 
just imagine these empty seats represent people whose lives have not yet reached or have not yet come to that point of understanding who Jesus really is. And there is a, a God-shaped hole in them. And that means it's a death-bringing, sin-bringing kind of hole because we can't be good people without our devoted king. Okay? And just imagine that as you consider your devotion, this time next year, we put out the same amount of seats. And look, I don't give a toss if people go to other churches and stuff like that. I don't get paid anything. I don't, I don't care. But if those seats represent empty lives, would you, would you commit to praying that the Lord would steal your resolve to really start praying for that person that may have been coming to your mind now, to your family members, street, neighbourhood, workmates, that, that they would come. And next Easter, God willing, those seats will be filled. And whether they go away changed or unmoved, they will hear this message. That's the real Easter challenge. I'm going to, where's Becky? Becky, she's got an awesome memory. She's going to remind me of this next year. I'm going to put a reminder in my phone so I don't forget. And I don't want to pressure you or anything. I just want you to consider that. Would you consider that with me? Because um, he's kind of worth it, isn't it? Anyway, we come to that time now where um, we're going to, and I'll just invite the band to come up. They've been awesome too. Thanks so much. Love those old hymns. We're going to sing a song together. Uh, as preparation for communion. Now, you might think it a bit strange. Not many churches probably do communion on a Sunday, on an Easter Sunday, that is. But you need to know something about this table that's prepared for us. We know that it is, from my sermon, pure devotion. What is represented there is the blood of Jesus on the cross, the body broken uh, on the cross, and that is pure devotion. So when you come to that table, you are coming to not just the table in a sense, but you are coming to all that Christ has done, all that God has done, okay? However, the thing that you need to know, FAP, not that. The thing that you need to know is that when Jesus actually instituted this, he said, I'm not going to drink of the cup until I drink it again with you in the kingdom. The kingdom is going to be an awesome place. So we can actually have this on an Easter Sunday, remember everything that he's done and show our own devotion to the Lord by coming here, but we can also say, I'm looking forward to that as you drink the real, the real drink, the real bread, the, 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 the real celebration in heaven. That's pretty cool, hey? I use cool a lot, only when I'm talking about Jesus. Anyway, thank you for listening to me. I really appreciate it, and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to pray now. Um, Father, as we sing this song and as we prepare our hearts for this celebratory, celebratory meal, this remembrance meal, all wrapped up into one. Move in our hearts, O oh Lord. Move in our hearts as we sing this song and then as we drink together. In Jesus' name, amen.